Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 128. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 32 through 35 and follow with some thoughts about perceptions and protections. In the previous episode, episode 127, Yechezkel spent a lot of time ripping Pharaoh a new one. And this episode is no different. In chapter 32, Pharaoh is likened to a lion and a sea monster, which sounds formidable, but God is more formidable, and every pillar of Egyptian society will be toppled. Quote, I will drench the earth with your oozing blood upon the hills, and the watercourses shall be filled with your gore. Oh, damn! And with that cheery image, that's right, kids, it's time for your favorite and mine, parable time. A watchman stands at his post, And when he sees the enemies approach, he sounds the horn to warn the people. If the people hear the horn but ignore the warning, and the enemy comes, then it's the people's own fault. But if the watchman doesn't blow the horn and disaster comes, then the watchman is at fault. So who's the watchman? That's right, it's Yechezkel. And the warning is against sin and wickedness. And I don't think I have to spell it out quite that much. Suffice to say that God really doesn't like smiting people. He would be much happier if the wicked repented. But in typical little fashion, the people complain and say that it's God that's not fair. Really? That's your big comeback? God's not fair? You know, it really doesn't matter because God is keeping score. Whoever's punished deserved it. And even when calamity strikes and Jerusalem falls, the people don't get the message. They show up to listen to the prophet, quote, They will come to you in crowds and sit before you in throngs and will hear your words, but they will not obey them. For they produce nothing but lust with their mouths, and their hearts pursue nothing but gain. To them you are just a singer of body songs who has a sweet voice and plays skillfully. They hear your words, but will not obey them. Wow, a singer of body songs indeed. Chapter 34 has Yechezkel railing against the shepherds of Israel who, quote, have been tending yourselves. Is it not the flock that the shepherds ought to tend? Because the sheep have been wandering away and getting themselves eaten by predators. And that's not good. So God tells Yechezkel that he's taking over, that he'll graze the sheep properly, and he'll tend to the injured and protect the lean from the stout, and eventually appoint a single shepherd to tend to them. That's right, quote, my servant David, he shall tend them, he shall be a shepherd to them. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be a ruler among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. But don't get too excited, kids, because we're not done with the smiting. Chapter 35 will take one more swing at Edom and Mount Seir. We're going to get a righteous whooping, quote, When the whole earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced when the heritage of the house of Israel was laid waste, so will I treat you. The hill country of Seir and the whole of Edom, all of it shall be laid waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And on that cheery, vengeful note, here endeth the lesson.
Hezekel covers a lot of ground in this episode, but I want to focus on two specific yet unrelated ideas. First, the role of the prophet as seen by the prophet versus the role of the prophet as seen by the people. And second, who really deserves the scorn and blame when a society falls apart and who deserves protection? So we've discussed on probably a dozen you know, other occasions about how awful a job it is to be a prophet. You know, I cannot understate this. The pay is terrible. The boss is impossibly demanding. And the clients, well... Oh, you are just the worst type of person. The prophet's role falls arguably into three categories. There are the prophets of rage. Consolation. It's alright, cry. Crying gets the sad out of you. And warning. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, no Will Robinson. Danger. Hezekiel begins his tenure as prophet at a time when Jerusalem and Judah had yet to fall. Theoretically, there's still time to avert disaster, but then again, there isn't because the fate of Judah is sealed. We heard that from previous prophets, especially Yirmiyahu. But Yehezkel is not preaching to that wicked choir. He's speaking to the exile community in Babylon. Their fate isn't sealed yet, but it could be. And there's this giant cautionary tale unfolding to the west. The wicked in Jerusalem falling prey to the Babylonian armies, the temple burning. How are the people not making this connection? And so Yehezkel is here to warn. In chapter 33 alone, the root for warning in Hebrew, Zayin He Resh, is used eight times in various conjugations of the verb and in noun form. He perceives himself as the last chance for the people. He's that yellow blinking light before the hairpin curve. He's the admonition on the coffee cup that contents inside are very hot. And to see yourself in this fashion as the scold, the fish and cat in the hat, whose real name apparently is Carlos K. Crinklebein, it, it's pretty soul-crushing, you gotta admit. I mean, there you are, warning, 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 and well, no one listens. Being the prophet in warning mode is like being Cassandra or a Cassandra. You know, you know what's gonna happen, and you try to warn people, and no one listens. But I gotta say that I really hate the fact that the Cassandra became a metaphor for being a doomsayer, you know, a worry war to kill joy for three reasons. Number one, Cassandra was the daughter of King Prime and Queen Hecuba of Troy. And as women and Greek myths go, she was beautiful, which meant that the gods were going to try to rape her. And so when Apollo tries to basically rape her and she says no, he spits into her mouth, ew, and curses her. Did you get that? He sexually assaults her and she's the one that gets punished. Well, f*** that. Number two, her curse. I mean, what was her curse? Did she get turned into a tree or a deer or have to push a rock up a mountain? Nope. She would prophesize the future correctly and no one would believe her. That is, she would have a voice, but it would be ignored by the patriarchy, which is pretty much par for the course for women these days. And number three, her name has become an idiom, another word for a worrywart. A worrywart? A killjoy? Someone to be ignored for being overly pessimistic and wrong? But the thing is, she was right! She was right! Oh my god, everything she said about the fate of Troy came to pass. You know, the horse, don't bring the horse in, and they, oh god. You know, and you can imagine how the Trojans reacted to her warnings. I imagine that the reaction to her was probably different, you know, than, than the people to Yehezkel. After all, she was a woman. You know, yeah, she was the princess of Troy, but, you know, women are prone to, you know, hysteria. Bitches be crazy. <laughs> Isn't that right, Nick? But Yehezkel, he was a man, and he was a member of the priestly elite. 
one could not so quickly dismiss him by making, you know, the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs hand gesture, you know, when Yechezkel wasn't looking. You know, the one where you like, you know, you make circles with your index finger while pointing at your head. But the thing is that Yechezkel already knows how his warnings will go over. He'll stand up, you know, and deliver the word of God like he's supposed to. And the people, you know, quote, will come to you in crowds and sit before you in throngs and will hear your words, but they will not obey them. They will produce nothing but lust in their mouths, and their hearts pursue nothing but gain. To them you are just a singer of body songs, who has a sweet voice and plays skillfully. They hear your words, but will not obey them. In other words, he knows that he comes across as entertainment. They come and listen to him for laughs, and that's just devastating. I know I couldn't do it. And yet, he persists. Yechezkel then shifts gears into rage mode and focuses his ire on the wicked, specifically the leaders, or as he talks about them, the shepherds who are derelict in keeping the herd safe. You know that leaders can take a country off the rails is pretty you know, conventional. We're kind of watching it happen in real time uh, in certain countries of the world. Um, the fish stinks from the head, and I'm not referring to Carlos K. Crinklebein. I believe the word that you know the ancient Greeks used was kekistocracy, where it's like the governance by the worst possible people. But Tehezkel has even harsher words for the strong and well-fed. Quote, to the rams and the bucks, is it not enough for you to graze on choice grazing ground, but you must also trample with your feet what is left from your grazing? And is it not enough for you to drink clear water that you must also muddy with your feet what is left? And must my flock graze on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied? In other words, you know, drink, eat. No one's begrudging you your grazing, you know, on the choice ground. But you have to trample. Why actively create the conditions where your success comes at the expense of other people? I mean, do you really have to hobble others in order to maintain your place? Is that how you see the world? He continues, quote, Because you pushed with flank and shoulder against the feeble ones and butted them with your horns until you scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a spoil. I will decide between one animal and another. Now, Yechezkel's not saying that there's never a circumstance where resources are endless and no games are zero-sum. Sometimes in life, there is a winner and there is a loser. There is only one pumpernickel bagel left on the platter. Are you going to take it or should I take it? Well, if you ask me, you can have it because I don't really care much for pumpernickel. But if that's your third bagel and I haven't eaten today, do you really need a third one just because you can? And can I get over my dislike of pumpernickel? Well, probably not. But in our late capitalist moment, which has been schlepping on for decades, the messaging is pretty clear. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. So if you can take, if you're one of those stout rams or the child of a real estate reality star or a member of the priestly elite, why shouldn't you? Well, Yechezkel has an answer. God will judge you and find you wanting. But there's more. And it's one that reflects the man in his times, the only corrective to a rapacious elite, to the strong who grind the faces of the poor, is a stronger leader to keep them in check. Quote, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be the ruler among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So on the one hand, it's good for the weak who finally get a break. But on the other hand, it's just replacing one corruptible power with another. I guess having God on duty to keep an eye on things will keep David's heir in line so he can keep the rich and powerful in line. Maybe. But I wonder if there's a better alternative, one where society's rich and powerful are kept in check, not by a bigger force, 
but by a sense of propriety, patriotism, and altruism, where what's best for we supersedes what's best for me. <laughs> you serious? If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 129 when we continue in the book of Ezekiel with chapters 36 to 39.